Welcome to Ancient and Justified. Empty party zone. Revisit it. With me, James Hyman. And with me, Simone Angel. I'm good. I'm sitting here and I'm literally right now looking at a keel built toucan. I am not kidding you. Do I look that bad? It's amazing. You're so funny. I'm not looking at you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am now. You look great, James. Thank you very much. Thank you. So do you in your idyllic scenario. Thank you. Right. Thank so you. we're doing Mark from Alternate today, mm-hmm. which is good. I mean, another. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like this. And proper rave. If I were, again, my memory is correct, because it's funny when you start reading and you go back into all the detail, things flood back. And I think it was June 93 when um, it was a a liberation rave in Paris. Do you remember a guy, Kirk Field? Because I remember he was there all dressed like some kind of tree. Yes. Yeah, I love Kirk. He, thank you. He wished me happy birthday the other I love day. Kirk. And he was just, I'm pretty yes. sure it was like a tree. Quite honoured. It was probably one of my Something one of my most high profile sort of celeb DJs. Not celeb, high ranking DJ. I was sandwiched in between Mike Pickering and Sasha. I had a few minutes DJing. It was in some big hall. Nice. Yeah, and and alternate yeah. were there. And I'm assuming we did a little quick you interviewed them very quickly with the robot yes. maybe running around. Yes, I have very vague memories of that. And I remember sitting with Kirk afterwards when he was still kind of half-dressed in his strange outfit. And I do remember Alternate being there, but I had no idea it was in France. Yeah, definitely Just... in Paris. Long Garnier, I'm pretty sure, was there. Right, Okay, we need to get him on the show as we well. Do. So Kirk Field has just written a book called Rave New World. So he's writing about all his experiences in the early rave scene. Um, I love those. I can I can't get enough of those books. Can I tell which there is one? And Mark wrote one, of course, did. right? Oh, you have it. I've read it. How cool. It's oh my goodness. So so signed yeah, by the man himself. So James oh, James is holding up the book right now. And so the sleeve is literally just it's kind of like a blank cover with just the alternate face mask on it. Of course, the very famous um iconic face mask. Yeah, 30 years ahead of his alternate. time with COVID, right? I mean, mm-hmm. definitely ahead of their time. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, I wonder how he yeah, feels about, about that. that. You know what I mean? He was bang on it with the masks, right? <laughs> I don't think that's what they were thinking. I don't think it was to keep out germs back then. Was it to get the the rush from the Vix? That's another thing that they kind of. Do you remember all that? Ooh, the Vix vapor rub could have been. Oh, I have to ask him. Absolutely. That. And I'll tell you another maybe. thing. I mean, maybe I'm getting a bit sociologically deep. But I think what, what, there's a nice pattern when you read up about them, about all that. They're a bit like the KLF, a duo. You never really saw them. And they did a lot of pranks. I mean, whether it was flying hot air balloons from rave to rave, Christmas um, cakes called, what was it, Brand E for Christmas, and running what, for... What, what, hold on, hold they, on, go They back. did a lot what? of pranks. I know, but what was the Christmas thing? I think they were just making these Christmas, Christmas cakes. You know, you put brandy into Christmas cakes to kind of give it some flavour. So they had a play on words, right. brand E, 
And I think they were going to drop oh. Christmas cakes out of hot air balloons and give them to like loads of old people. So he can clarify this. But they would basically do a lot of, you know, silly things. They said, and they say this repeatedly, and I rate them, they said this at the time through many, many magazines. They were saying in their interviews, listen, we're just having a laugh. We're just making stuff up. Like, again, they were ahead of their time with fake news. They were just doing all these pranks saying, oh, we just, you know, we, we want to be signed for, we're only going to accept a million or we're, we're DJing for 50 grand. Or, you know, we're just making all this endless stupidity of stuff up. And the press were believing everything they fed them. You'll see that if you read, go back and read all their stuff. Now, one thing just before you go off and do your interview is about this book as well. Right? This is such a good book. I strongly recommend before, if you have time, before you interview it. Maybe there's a PDF online. No, there isn't. Did you look? I wanted to get a Kindle version. See, that's good. I rate you for looking. There is no... Okay. That's a good oh, thing. Of course, I would. I, I love reading. I would have read it, and I love books like that. But yeah, there he there is he on is. the back cover. But what is so beautiful about this book is the detail, the pain, the struggle, the craziness, the lunacy. You know, these rave autobiographies. Bring it on! I want. I want everyone to do one. I think anyone who's been in that scene really should just. There's been a lot of them. I mean, you've had Goldie, you've had um, him, you've had Billy Bunter, you've had a lot of them. So. He's really got the struggles. Good, yeah. Cannot (laughs) wait for yours. Bring it on. When's it coming then? I'm going to put pressure on you. When's it coming? Oh, I don't know. Got to find a publisher. But yes. Forget it. um, Write it first, then find the publisher. Don't make an excuse. No, no, no. I am writing. I am writing. Wow. But I'm writing two things. I'm writing two things at the same time. So I'm writing my book about fame and mental health, which I'm planning to just release as a free ebook. And then the real book. And that's just going to take me a little while longer. It's, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot to write about. Yes. I look forward to that. And I look forward to this interview that you're about to do with Mark Archer, one half of Alternate. I'm joined here today by Mark Archer. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Mark is, of course, known, oh, he's known from so many things. I mean, there is um, Rhythm OD, Bizarre Inc., Nexus 21, Slow Motion, The Book, The Man Behind the Mask, and, of course, Alternate. (laughs) (laughs) The The big one. (laughs) The big one. Yes. Look at the stuff behind you. How many records do you have there? Um, I mean, it's it's not a massive collection because I only, rather than be a collector where, you know, people buy like a certain label and, and try and buy every single thing on that label and then move on to the next one. That's all stuff that I've, I've actually played. So there's only probably about 4,000 um, here. I mean, there's another two shelves in front of me and some more under the stairs but wow. but it's 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 just stuff that i play rather than than being a you know like an avid collector but you say stuff that you play you don't play records out anymore do you surely no i, I, I stopped a few years ago i mean it, it was getting to the point where i was taking records abroad with me and and the record i was getting to the destination and the records weren't um, you know, and like I'd, I'd have to play the gig with either borrowed records or somebody else's CD mm. collection, 
and then then my records would turn up the next day. Um, and then I, I did a gig in in Vegas um, and was told, you know, if, if you turn up with either a massive CD wallet or, or boxes of records um, that, and you're, you've not got, like, the correct visa, they'd turn you around, you know, and, and then you'd be banned for the country for, for so long. So just use a USB. And, I mean, it's it the first time I'd ever played off a memory stick um, and it was – it was one of those electric daisy carnival festivals. Oh, you know, I went like, to one. Yes. Yeah, there's like 110,000 people there, and and yeah, it was my first time playing playing off that, so it was a bit you know, nerve wracking. But it's it, it, for the first few trips away, it felt weird not having two boxes of records, you know, taking them to oversized baggage and all the rest. But I guess over the years, I've got used to it now. Yeah. So I was talking to DJ Hype on another show. I was talking to DJ Hype about giving up records. And it was really hard for him, of course. He was so into all the scratching. But mm-hmm. he was saying he was having problems as well that, you know, the for instance, the people would, would jump around and, and the record, you know, it would jump a little bit. Or also he said he would arrive in places and the equipment was just ancient yeah. really bad and so he he had to give it up as well did yeah. you so so did you did it kind of break your heart a little bit or were you yeah okay i mean there was there was a point where i was taking like three different formats because the 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 equipment because i'd always played off record um and sometimes you'd get there and like the decks weren't set up properly you know you put the needle on and it would just scoot straight across um so you know you'd try a cd and maybe the CD wouldn't read the, the the CD properly, so you'd end up using a USB. You know, it's it was there was a, a a point where it was very difficult to play records, and it just got to the point where I just couldn't keep taking them. You know, for either the worry of losing them or or the fact that you couldn't play properly. Yeah, I'm talking to you as if you're just a DJ, but of course that's just that's just one of the many hats that you wear, right? So. Yeah. These days, when you have to say you have to write some down somewhere, like what your profession is, what do you actually write down? Do you write down author, musician, DJ? I mean, what are you? Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't produce as much music as I, I used to. So right. I, I guess, I guess I put DJ more than anything else at, at the moment. But a DJ was what I guess I wanted to do um, when when I finally realised what I wanted to do after I'd left school. Um, I mean, it was probably when I was about 17, I realized that's, that's what I wanted to do, but just didn't know how to get into it. You know, Stafford, where I was living, all the clubs had their own DJs, you know, so you couldn't just kind of muscle in. Mm. Um, so I, I, I kind of fell into making music first and then the DJing came, came after. Talk me through that time then. So you were how old at this point? You said seventeen. Um, yeah, about about seventeen. Yeah, seventeen, eighteen. Um, and this was right uh, at the beginning of the rave scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this was probably before, like, before eighty eight. Um, so I was going out into clubs in Stafford, and they were playing like soul and funk, and the odd bit of electro and stuff. Um, so that was the kind of music I was into. And you know, I'd, I'd been practicing mixing and doing pause button mixtapes and things like that. Um, but uh, I was working as a painter and decorator at the time, and I got laid off because there was there was no work at this this company. 
and I bumped into a lad that I used to know from the breakdancing days, and he got a set of decks, and he said, you know, you need to come around mine one time. We can have a go on the on the decks. And I'd bought a little sampling keyboard, and it wasn't – I had no idea, you know, about going in and making music. I just wanted to learn how certain – things were done on 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 tracks that I'd heard on like my old electro tapes so I tried to you know I sampled the same noises and worked out how they played them and things like that mm. and and took this keyboard around to his house he mixed like two copies of of drum beats and I played over the top and we recorded it down to a cassette then overdubbed on top of that with with maybe a vocal sample or something did some really crude demo tracks um and around the same time a recording studio had opened in stafford and we took the tape to the studio and he signed us up there and then i mean i've I've got the tape and it's absolutely terrible so i'm not not quite sure why he signed us but uh you know obviously he, he he saw some kind of uh you know spark there that that we could do some kind of music that no one else who was going into the studio was doing you know i think this is a uh, I, I keep noticing this and a lot of the interviews that i'm doing you know all of us whatever we were doing back then we all started out being really quite bad at it you know and i think a lot of people <laughs> think that they have to be completely polished and perfect before they can go out there and it's like no you just have yeah. to go out there and sometimes you just happen to be at the right time the right place and everything just totally. just kind of gels and you get opportunities and then yeah. you just keep building on on whatever little spark you had there right exactly i think about most of my career has been happy accidents and being at the right place at the right time but surely you were also at the right place at the wrong time. I mean, it can't have just been, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been in the wrong place at the right time as well. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to be everywhere. You just got to be out there and doing it, you know, just do it, whatever you've got in mind. If there's there's a plan you have, if there's something you want to do, just go out and do it, you know. Fall flat on your face, do it again. Is that the kind of advice you give your children these days? I'll tell I mean, my dad got to the point where um, I was doing the music and it wasn't leading to anything. And and there was a, a, a job in the village where we were living as a butcher. And he said, you know, you can either take this job as a butcher and, you know, there'll always be butchers and you'll always have a profession. So you'll be bringing in a wage, but if you don't do the music, there'll always be that what if. Hmm. So he said, you know, it's your life, you go ahead. Um, and so I've always said to my kids, you know, just just do the best yeah. that you can at things, you know, and if there's something that you like doing, go for it. And I mean, you know, jobs like a butcher or whatever, you can always do these things, right? I mean, you can yeah. always just try some stuff. I really like that. I like the I like the approach that your dad took because also, I don't know if you would have liked being a butcher. I kind of think that, no, yeah. exactly. So I think he used that mm. as a really good example, you know, to kind of give you that push even. Do you yeah. think he did? Yeah. Is that, yeah, is that really, part of the it plan? Was, it was it was another one of the nurturing things because he was in he was in a band um, 
that, that, that played at like comedy clubs and things like that. He was like the, the vocalist and played congas and stuff. So he was always into music. We always had music on in the house. So yeah. I think, you know, secretly there was probably like me getting into music was something that he really wanted to push. Yeah. That's funny. I remember for me, whenever I was trying to go to England and, and get a record deal or get into TV or get into whatever, I would always come back home and nothing worked. And And I remember the last time I went over to England, I'd actually signed up for a secretary course and I bought myself like this horrible little suit. And <laughs> And I think that idea that if I had to go back to Holland one more time, I would become a secretary. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Was that? <laughs> like okay yeah yeah so I, I think I created what your dad created for you there yeah so, yeah totally yeah so you were talking about um 1988 and 89 so I would like to play a little clip for you James Hyman he's got the biggest magazine collection in the world and he's right. been grabbing a lot of old magazines with stuff from alternate in there and so right. i want to play back some some old quotes and get your get your opinion and your thoughts on that nme 23rd of november 1991 the thing that bugs me says mark is that the younger kids today don't understand the history of house music you mentioned 89 to them they don't know what you're talking about let alone 88 we're all into the 88 Acid Revival. There was a club in 88 in Stoke we used to go to, and you just can't capture the atmosphere of that again. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's weird, though, because, like, I, I've, I've got, like, tapes from, say, 1990, where they call 89 old school. Mm -hmm. Because the music was was changing so fast, and year on year there was like a new mm -hmm. a new year's worth of ravers coming out of school and joining, who didn't necessarily know about you know the music that had gone. They just came into the scene and and listened to the music that was there at the time, and then what followed. Um, so it was it, it's weird. Because of it, how how fast it moved, that that like a year previous would um, you know be classed as old school, which is why I think with the alternate tracks, I always tried to put in like a, a, a sample of a tune from a year or two before. Hmm. I mean, with, with so with infiltrate, there's the there's the uh, eight to eight state Pacific state part. Activate the the violin part is off um, a kid and play track that was like really big in like eighty nine and ninety. Um, Evaporates got the the strings of life sample in it. So there was always something from a few years previous as a as a bit of an education for people who who'd not heard it but also as a like a familiarity 
kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you say if you're out and you hear a tune for the first time, you just take it on like face value, whether it's good or bad or whatever. If you go out again and you hear it for a second time, you instantly recognize it. And because there's a part in our tunes, the first time you ever heard one of them, you'd recognize something in it. So we'd already got that recognizability. That makes sense. So now it really is old school. I yeah. mean, 88, 89, that's a long time oh, ago. Yeah. So for, for those who weren't there, what would you like them to know? I mean, 88 turned, for me anyway, everything completely on its head. I mean, one, one minute we were going to like, well, like a Saturday night ritzy kind of club um, where you probably had to wear shoes, trousers, and a shirt, sometimes even a tie. You know, there was like a strict dress code. And yeah. and there would be a portion where they'd play chart music and then maybe a bit of indie music and then a bit of soul and dance stuff. And then I get a phone call. Do you want to go to this night? It's on, it's on a Tuesday. You go in there, you can wear trainers, T-shirts, people with bandanas on, on their heads and stuff. It's like pretty much one kind of music, just completely dark, dripping from the ceiling, smoke machine and and a strobe. And it was just, you know, a million miles away from the Sharon and Tracy club that was on the Saturday night. It was crazy, wasn't it? I mean, the first time you walk into a place like that, it's just, it's like landing on a different planet. So, you know, you're just like, wow, what is going on? And, you know, there was that much smoke. All you could see was like the flash of the strobe and stuff. And it just, and you would get lost in the music. You know, I, I, I know that obviously drugs did take quite a big part um, in the whole acid house movement. Um, but I, I myself, I was way too scared. Um, so I just, I just went there and, and drank Lucasade and pulled faces thinking everyone else was pulling it. <laughs> in a face because they like the tunes <laughs> that is so funny that is so interesting because i mean looking at alternate and everything that you guys did it seemed like yeah you guys would have been off your head the yeah. whole time yeah. you know everything was really geared towards the people who were on ecstasy yeah i mean we, so we get that all so the time interesting that you didn't mm. I, i've had it so many times where people have said there's certain parts in certain tunes and until you're on something you don't realize about that part of the tune but it really sticks out and it's like your bit of the tune and they said all your tunes have got those bits in and they're like how on earth can you put those in without knowing what it does to people yeah. I guess you were just picking up on the vibe naturally. Yeah. And it was just lifting you there. You know, I, I was ju- genuinely, you know, into the music. If there was a rave going on, we'd be there right at the start and I'd be there still, you know, right right at the end. Um, yeah. Just, just that into the music and, you know, like followed it right the way through the rave scene. And so Chris Pete, who uh, was the other half mm-hmm. of Alternate, was it the same for him? I mean, was he as clean living as you were? I don't think so. I know he liked to to, okay. to smoke. But, um, I mean, apart from being in the studio, you know, ma- making the tracks, 
Um, I didn't know him before we started making music. He was just someone who came to work at the studio, so I'd never met him before. Okay. So he wasn't like a, a friend. And then we just he, – he could play keyboards, and I was the guy who went into the studio with a pile of records saying, I like that noise, and I like that noise, and I like that bit. Um, yeah. you know, so he'd like start playing a riff and I'd say, I'd either, you know, go up at the end or go down or can you, can you play something a bit different and, and keep going until we find like a nice riff. And, and that's how we'd make, make music. Um, but he was, he was not into, not into like house or, or rave or anything. He was, he was more into Depeche Mode and computers and stuff. How funny. And so who came up with the idea of, you know, what was it like? Kind of like, what were you wearing? Like chemical warfare, uh, the, like the, suits. Yeah. Or, I don't know, some kind of weird suits. And then, of course, you had the masks. Yeah, you had the alternate masks. Who came up with well, that? Well, um, we were actually doing a tour with artists from Warp Records and Network Records. So there was Nexus Twenty One, Rhythmatic, uh, Nightmares on Wax, and LFO. And that was like the late end of nineteen ninety, early ninety one, and sometime early 91 we played in a club called the eclipse in coventry um nexus 21 on stage chris one side me the other x stand with a keyboard on x stand with a couple of drum machines then we got booked because it infiltrate was on promo at the time and the eclipse asked us to play an alternate gig me being really naive about the whole drugs thing i thought people had seen us looking exactly the same I go wait a minute i've seen these guys last month so i thought <laughs> let's let's completely hide ourselves so no one knows who we are oh that's funny. i mean uh, thinking about it now probably mo- half of the crowd wouldn't have even realized anyone was on stage mm-hmm. but um my brother was in the raf at the time and i asked him you know have you got anything that we can cover ourselves up in and he got some of these nbc suits the chemical warfare suits. So we cut the charcoal lining out from the inside. I actually, because it was so makeshift and we, we only thought there was ever going to be one gig. Um, I, I covered the, the pocket flap in Tipex and then colored it in with a highlighter and then did an outline saying alternate. And then it started to crack. So we put sellotape on it. And after about six months, we thought, you know, we're getting quite a few gigs here. We're going to have to wash these suits because at the moment they're standing up on their own. Yeah, so because we honestly oh thought we'd do one alternate gig, you know, and that would be it. You know, we part, m- might do like a follow-up single and nothing happened with it. So there was no kind of big plan at all. Because you guys were more focused on Nexus 21, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was A, we were known for, and B, what we were concentrating on. The whole reason Alternate started was because when we signed to Network Records, we had a DAP with it had about nine tracks on it, and when they when they said, have, have you, you know, we, you've got all this Nexus Twenty One stuff, have you got any other material that we can put out?" And we played them this DAP, and they said, "It sounds a bit like Nexus Twenty One, but there's more influences in it. Can we put it out as something else?" And we looked at sound, and they said, "Can you think of a name?" And Chris used to be in a in a band at his school called Alienate. So he was like, we'll call ourselves Alienate. They phoned us up, you know, say a month or so later, that the, the records had turned up at the offices. Do you want to come and see them? 
drove to Birmingham, opened the box, lifted it out, and there's a sticker on the front saying alternate. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got the name wrong. And they've said, well, it's, it's too late now. So he, oh, he I stuck. love it. Oh, that's so funny. It's just like this crazy, like all these happy accidents. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Wow. Okay, I want to play another clip for you. And let's share this with you. This is from Mixmag, April 1992, on some of the scams and pranks that Alternate used to do. So they were filming a video for Activate, the pair faked stealing Chris's car from a car park in Stoke. Unfortunately, their previous antics in speeding around the place at the dead of night attracted the police who tried to nick Chris for breaking into his own car with the keys. Maybe they thought the mask was suspicious. Then there's the one about the Christmas puddings. Um, in Stafford, they were giving out Christmas puddings, I think, labelled Brand E, as in Brandy, Brand E. Only one lady in the whole place would accept a pudding, and she was convinced that there was something in it, perhaps explaining why she took it. Equally unsuccessful was a flight in a hot air balloon across Stafford to see what would happen. Nothing did. No one took any notice because they were too high up. Attempting to make up for this, Chris jumped out of the balloon while, of course, being filmed. He hit the ground some three feet below. Brave boy. And then there was the great promotion of Vicks. Taking a regular and unremarkable part of rave culture, Alternate converted it into a rave fetish. When the tabloids got hold of the story, Vicks fever really took off. And now it appears that Alternate are taking the piss out of those writing about the Vicks scene. Also, next up is a computer game from a software firm in Manchester. It features alternate figures running around throwing Vix pots, trying to rescue a DJ with the help of various friends, including the Robo Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what were we doing? <laughs> okay, let's call, let's talk about yeah. the pranks. I mean, when when we first signed to to network. Uh, they were based at a building called Stratford House in Birmingham. And you could pull right in front of this building. And we pulled up. I'd got a mini at the time. We pulled up and we could see them in the window. We waved and I went forward and then reversed and waved and went back and went forward and we waved and went. And we were just being, you know, because we were only like, what, 21, 22. So we were being a bit stupid. <laughs> and now... <laughs> Their press officer saw us and said, you know, we've got mileage with these guys because they're stupid. You know, they'll do anything. <laughs> but they kind of knew that when, when an artist has either got a tour to promote or a record out, people talk about them. But in, in between time, there's absolutely nothing to talk about and people can move on you know, to, to the next big thing. So they knew that if we created loads of little stories, we'd keep having stuff in the, in the press in between the releases that we had. So, I mean, they, you know, they made up loads and loads of different things, like the Christmas pudding one. The idea was we'd go up in a hot air balloon and throw these Christmas puddings out to people below. But before we started, someone said, if you throw a Christmas pudding out of a hot air balloon and it hits someone, it would probably kill them. <laughs> so we thought, 
okay, may, maybe we'll not throw the puddings out, but we'll go up in the hot air balloon anyway. So I hired the hot air balloon, got to a suitable location. It was too windy. So me and Chris stood in the, in the basket that was still sat on, <laughs> on the trailer on the back of this car. And the photographer lay on the floor and took photos looking up so it looked as though we were in the air. You didn't even go in the air? No, no. no. <laughs> I didn't even, didn't even inflate the balloon. <laughs> That's even funnier. Yeah. So, you know, there were, there were all just really stupid pranks. Um, we, we decided when we got back to Stafford that we'd try and give away the Christmas puddings. But if you're walking through, like, the centre of a town, and it's quite, quite a, a quiet place, two, two blokes wearing chemical warfare suits walk up to you, thrust a, a Christmas pudding <laughs> in your face. You'll be like, no, no, you're okay, Tar. So, oh and we couldn't God. give them away. Yeah, only one woman had one. How funny. So in a way, you guys were well ahead of your time because you were kind of creating fake news. Yeah, to- totally fake news. I mean, there, there was a story that we were uh, we launched our own brand of disco biscuit, which was an actual biscuit for ravers who were hungry while they were dancing. But <laughs> obviously, no one no one got hungry or a rave. Um, oh, funny. When, when we when we released uh, frequency, they said there was going to be a ceremonial bonfire. And we were going to burn the DAT tape so that we could not do any more versions of it and not press it up again. Um, loads of people turned up in Stafford looking for the, the bonfire, but there, there was no bonfire and I've still got the DAT tape now. Wow. So yeah. in hindsight, so of course it got you a lot of press, which was great. Yeah. But in a way, it also made you guys, you know, a lot more gimmicky. Um mm. So, you know, it's kind of like this pros and cons, right? Yeah. How do you feel um, about that these days? I mean, we did we did we did get um stick from certain people. I mean, you know how, how the media that when they discover a group, they'll like build them up until they get to a certain place and then can't wait to knock them and mm-hmm. and you know, we got we got a lot of that and I mean, in the in the two thousands, you know, way after the the original group kind of ended, there's there was a massive backlash saying how you know how cheesy and crap and all the rest. But it seems to have have, have gone like full circle. Um, the only scam I wasn't mad keen on was the the um, entering the local elections because I wasn't into politics at all, and I just didn't Wait. think yeah. Wait, hold that thought. I have something to share for you on that. Wait one okay. second. <laughs> NME, 25th of April, 1992, 30 years, literally, as I'm recording this. Chris, meanwhile, blithely continues to outline his plans for office as the uh, raving loony party. The High Commissioner for Techno is going to dispense all the chemicals from the drug companies in the milk every morning, so everybody will be off their heads when they wake up. We're going to have raves on every street corner with Radio 303 playing the same tune all day long. I'm also going to have a techno awareness campaign for disabled people because it's just not reaching them at all. I'm not being tasteless. I just like everybody having a laugh. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, they, they, again, this is the press, the press department, you know, coming up with like loads of ideas, and and the idea of Chris he actually ran for local elections. Uh, I mean, he, the the mad thing was he didn't come last. Wow. Which which <laughs> really really annoyed like a serious contender who we beat. Wow. But but we kind of shot ourselves in the foot because we'd go round to putting that there was um our, our campaign posters was don't hesitate, vote for alternate. And we'd go round putting them up on on lampposts and stuff all around Stafford. But fans would be coming along, you know, we'd go round to the next street and someone would come along and take it down. You know, so like as a memorabilia kind of thing. So uh, yeah, our post our posters were being nicked left, right, and centre. Um, I bet a lot of fans still have them, right? There must be yeah. they must be worth something now. Yeah, well, I mean, weirdly, I've I've got one left, um, and it's got Phil Collins' signature on it. For for some strange reason, where one of the times we were on top of the pops, I got Phil Collins to sign it. Thinking yeah. maybe my maybe my dad would like it, but he, <laughs> he, he didn't want it. Oh, I love the randomness. The other yeah. thing, so then of course there was the Vix thing, right? So yeah. for those who don't know, explain what the deal was with Vix and the rave scene. Right. So Infiltrate was was out at the time, and we did a gig. Uh, it's a resurrection up in uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. And we got in there and you could smell Vicks as soon as you got into the club. And I asked someone, what, what's the whole thing with this Vicks? And they said, like, oh, if, if you smear it on your chest as you're coming up off ecstasy and breathing deeply, it, it, it expands the height. Right, it gives you a rush a little bit. So, yeah. so, we, so we were like, okay, fair enough. But... When we did the video for um, Activate, we were on the back of a, a truck in Shelley's car park and we got the masks on and they got like little holes in them so that we could breathe. And we got a generator to power the, the sound system um, and the smoke was coming into the masks. So it was it, like there was soot on the inside of the masks. The guy who was dancing on the back of the truck he was in hospital the next day with carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my god! So, and because of the, you're wearing a mask that has got you know you're breathing pretty much the same air for like an hour at a time. It wasn't that pleasant. So the idea we thought let's just put a bit of Vicks inside the mask, and then it'd smell okay for the duration of the gig. Well, you're slowly but, getting poisoned. <laughs> But everyone then thought we were putting Vicks in the masks because we were taking ecstasy yeah. and we were just on stage, you know, getting higher and higher. So, you know, kind of like, even though we weren't, you know, everyone believed that kind of thing. I mean, we, we even did a, a, a program where we were uh, in Alton Towers and we got the masks and suits on and on a Wednesday afternoon, there's like loads of ravers wandering around all towers, completely off their nut, you know, asking us how many we'd had. Yeah. You know, we, we hadn't, we were on telly. So, 
so what did you say? I mean, did you were you honest about it at the time, or you just kind of played along? You just play, you know. I just played along, you know. We did the whole thing where, you know, most of our photos, our eyes are like really wide open. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we just we just kind of kind of went with it, like top of the pops. Um, I knew that people knew about the Vix thing, so the first time we were on top of the pops on my keyboard stand, there's a pot of Vix. So, like people at home who are like, no, you know, they'd be like, no way he's got a pot of VIX because they knew what it meant. Right. You know, and they wow. thought it's like BBC. You've got um, someone shouting rushing in the middle of the song. You've got a three-year-old girl saying top one, nice one, get sorted. Top one, nice one, get sorted. Top one, nice one, get sorted. And a pot of Vix on on the keyboard stand. They're like, "How risky is this?" That's what I mean. That's why it's so funny that you guys were straight because it was just all the all the signals. You were sending yeah. all the signals to the ravers. Hilarious. Mm. And I saw on a social media post from you the other day that are you in discussion with someone about possibly creating some menthol flavored. Um, what do you call them again? The the e-cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole the whole thing came from a, a friend of mine works for a company, and and I thought evaporate would be a brilliant name for a vape juice. And then yes. he was like, "Well, well, why don't you do it and like do a menthol flavor, but mm-hmm. one that one that's very like Vicks." Yeah. So it was just a kind of test the water to see whether. You know, because I don't smoke, you know, I've not smoked a, an e-cigarette or anything. So I don't know, you know, is, is menthol still a thing or <laughs> would, would other flavours be? But everyone's like, you know, you've got to, you've got to do a Vicks one, yeah, you know, because yeah. it, it totally makes sense. I think it makes sense. I think that's yeah. really smart. So it sounds so your, your brain is obviously still working like that a little bit. So some of those ideas were yours back in the day or. It, it was kind of like, you know, we, we'd brainstorm with the, with the press department, yeah. um, you know, and, and come up with daft things. I mean, at, at the time I, I was fully into them contacting Vix, you know, and see if we could get like sponsorship. And they're like, don't be so daft. It's like as if Vix want to be connected with people taking drugs. Yeah. You know, there's like they'd really yeah. distance themselves from it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So, <laughs> oh, hey, and and then tell me about about the book because, of course, you wrote the man behind a mask. I haven't been able to read it because it's not. It's still not on Kindle, is it? No, no. I'm I'm hoping because of the length of time it's been out that that I can I can get it and and move it on to. Uh, Amazon and see if they can do it on on Kindle, um, but it, it was it, it's something that you know. I, most of the things I've done in my life, I don't think if I was sixteen, seventeen, and someone had told me, you know, I'd, I'd be doing that, I wouldn't have believed them. And, and a book, it's still now is like you know, no way of I've, I've written a book, but um, the uh, Billy Bunter who who. He, he runs a company called Music Mondays. He did his own book 
Um, and it was like a self-published thing. You know, no, no one kind of was interested in rave books at all. So he did the whole thing himself. So he'd got everything in place to do it. And I did like a, a short interview in his book. And he said, like, of all the interviews in, in his book, he really liked my part. Would I be mm -hmm. interested in doing a book? And I didn't think anyone, you know, would be that interested in reading about my life at all. You know, it's just you don't think that it's something to shout about, even though, you know, people like the, the music and stuff like that. But I didn't want it to just be just about alternate, you know, everything around it, you know, before and after. So it's, the book is basically from when I was born up until uh, like 2016 when I got married. Wow. Uh, so, um, so yeah, um, a, a writer called Andrew Woods would phone me up every morning at 10 o'clock, just ask like one kind of open question and just let me burble for, for ages. And, and he recorded it all. Then there's the whole process of making sure it's all in the, the correct timeline because you'd be talking about one thing and then, then go on a tangent to something else that might not have been the same year. And and then he was trying to like find out facts of certain things. Luckily, I kept um, a scrapbook while we were in Alternate Nexus to anyone. So I could, you know, try and find dates and, and photos and things like that. Ah, oh, that's why all the pictures are in there. Yeah. Um, and then the, then there's the, the proofreading, which I got my wife to do because I'm, I'm the slowest reader on the planet. And when you, when you read something that you've – it's like when you listen to an interview, you remember yourself saying it. So, I, you know, I would have been the worst person to proofread it because I'd have just skimmed through. So uh, right. my, my wife had the, uh, the lovely job of proofreading it. So and what, what were the responses? Well, I mean, it, it, it sold out and went for a second print. So, uh, you know, I was nice. really, really pleased with how it went down. But more than that, like the, the messages that I got um, from people, um, because obviously people have a preconceived idea when, you know, they, they see someone in a group or whatever and they assume, oh, you know, you've made a record and you're minted for the rest of your life and your life must be absolutely fantastic, you know. And then when, when they read in a book that I was, like, bullied quite badly at school and it happened to them, you know, I get messages from people saying, you know, I didn't realise it had happened to you. I thought, you know, I was the only one. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it, and and some people have said, you know, I, I tried to to make music, and I've seen how you've struggled in your book, um, and you've inspired me to start making music again. Wow. You know, and so you know, it's some really really positive messages, which is nice. That's that's the best, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because um, you are, according to your own saying, more insecure and shy than people realise. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people think if, if you can go on stage or DJ or or whatever, you know, you, you're quite extroverted or whatever. But, you know, I, I've, I've been in clubs where people all, you know people are talking about you, 
because they know you know they recognize you but they won't come over and talk to you because they don't know what to say because they've got this idea of what you're going to be like so they might not have the confidence to come and talk to you so then you're stood in a club pretty much on your own you know you're surrounded by people but incredibly lonely um mm. but I, I i am and always have been very very shy you know i've i've been in situations where I've seen a person who could run a record label that I've actually done a track for and I've never met them before. And I've been thinking in my head, you know, what to say and can't think of the right thing to say and not even gone up and said hello to them, even though I've done a record for their label. You know, wow. just, yeah, I'm pretty crap like, like that, especially when it's, you know, like people like other musicians like people whose records I've bought, you know, I can never go up and ask them for an autograph or whatever, you know, I always get my wife to do it. Um, oh. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's quite funny because I've seen this, you know, throughout my, my MTV career, so many artists are really shy, mm. are really insecure, and no one would believe them. It's It's quite odd, like how so many quite shy people end up in this industry yeah. as performers. Mm. I mean, it's because people think that you've you've got to be, you know, quite extrovert to be in this industry, you know, to, to, almost like a, a kind of show-off kind of thing. It's not you just like making music, right. you know. Th th yeah. All the rest is it comes after it, you know, and, and, and so many people, you know, don't want – all the add-ons they just want to make music mm -hmm. you know and it, and it is very difficult for a, for a lot of people especially the pressure you know of have having to do all the interviews or if you're a producer and you make a few tunes and everyone suddenly wants you to dj you know and you don't, don't necessarily want to do that part but without doing that part then you know people won't book you and then you your records won't sell you know it's, there's, there's yeah. a lot of, lot of pressure yeah, actually, I want to um, get a little, I want to play another clip for you, actually, from your book. Oh, cool. Mark Archer, The Man Behind the Mask, page 236. These were the tunes that had nurtured my growth as a musician, and here I was packing them into the car for a fast buck. Even if each record was worth £1 per disc, there was at least £1,500 worth, and many were worth way more than a quid a pop. Some of them are worth £30 each. I took them all the way to this Birmingham record shop and they offered me 300 pounds. It was ridiculous. A red hot record collection for 300 pounds. I wish I'd told them to F off, but I didn't. I just stared at the counter and said, okay then. To top it all, I got a parking ticket. It was what you might call a turbo shit day. Within days, those records were selling for 15 to 20 pounds each. Yeah. Mm. Not a good what day. What was that like? Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. I mean, it, it, it got to the point where I'd been with the record label for, for so long and the record label stopped trading. And I'd got all my eggs in one basket, basically. Um, so whenever I did um, a new track, I'd just send it to them and it would come out. Mm. Uh, when they got like a new project coming they'd asked me to do a remix 
all of a sudden they weren't there. I had no idea who to send music to, whether anyone would like the music that I was doing. Um, just absolutely no confidence whatsoever. And obviously bills, you know, were, were, were coming in. And because the music has moved on so fast and I had like all, all my hardcore records in boxes um, in a room and I was getting nagged at about when are these going to get moved? And I don't want to put them in the garage because they'll go damp and you don't put them up in the loft because they'll warp and all the rest. Um, and it was like, right, I may as well sell them because this music's possibly not going to come back. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to play them anymore. Just put them all in my car and took them over to Birmingham. And I, I was really stupid to agree to the amount of, of money that I was offered. But at that point in time, you know, I, I needed the money. You know, when yeah. when you've got bills and, and no way of, of paying them because I didn't have a job. You know, similarly, like from 1990 for – a period of about six years, I built up a recording studio, you know, from buying like my first sampler with my first advance to, to having a room in the house that was like all carpeted and, and a mixing desk and keyboards and drum machines and everything. And slowly, one by one, I had to sell all the pieces of equipment until, you know, I think I've got like one one keyboard left. and wow. And it's... You know, you're not supposed to regret things in your life. Um, everything happens for a reason. But you know, I'd, I'd love to still have my my entire studio, but but it it all went. Yeah. Well, and at that point as well, it was just you by yourself. You and Chris <clears throat> kind of fell out, mm -hmm. so you didn't even have the other person next to you no. to do this. So it was really you on your own. Yeah. Um, so I get a feeling, um, for me personally, I think we started our podcast at the right time because a lot of people um, that I'm interviewing, I think if I would have interviewed them 10 years ago or even five years ago or two years ago at the height of COVID, this would have been quite a different show mm -hmm. because it was just things, for a lot of people, things weren't going that well, but everything seems to have turned around. Yeah. And people are in much better places and including you, right? It, it looks like you're out all the time DJing and, and yeah, yeah the, uh, things are up again. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, la the last two years have been horrendous. Um, you know, when he with like the beginning of 2020, you know, I'd got gigs for, for the whole year sorted. Um, and, and even when it first started, people thought it was going to maybe, you know, maybe like four weeks and it'll all be over. You know, no one could envisage how long it was uh, going to go on for. But I, I watched like like a domino effect. All my gigs getting cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. You reschedule them, and then they get cancelled again because it was still going on. But now it's you know it's 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 really starting to turn around again and 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 go back to some sort of normality. Yeah. So was I mean. Was your diary this full before COVID? Because it looks like you're doing a, a, a lot of stuff these days. Yeah, I, did, I mean, it was the old school scene's a bit of a weird one because it, it, it goes in kind of waves. So there can be some years where you're just not as busy as, as others. 2020 was starting to look like 
you know, a really good year. I had some really good gigs and festivals, but obviously they they all got cancelled. But this this year, there's still like a, a certain level of trepidation where I think some of the older crowd are still slightly worried about going out. Um, mm. Whereas you know the younger crowd, they're just they'll go out there. It's 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 done for them. Um, yeah. But luckily. I think we're with with things like the 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 boiler room set that I did um I've managed somehow to 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 gain like a a, a younger audience um as, as well as the fact that there's a lot of people now who are going out clubbing who have heard all the tunes because their mom and dad have played it all their life you know they've they've been Funny. they've been brought up <laughs> on alternate so you know you, you I could be like playing a, an old school set and there'll be like 17, 18 year olds down the front knowing every single word to like all the old school tracks. And you, how on earth do you know this? But their mom and dad have obviously been playing these tunes all their life. How funny. Wow. Yeah. James was saying, he was talking about how, you know, like 30 years, he said that is as much time as there was between the Beatles mm. and the Spice Girls. And you're like, Oh, yeah. Oh wow! But it's it's <laughs> crazy. It's mad because I used to say, you know, like like in the late eighties, early nineties, if you played a tune from thirty years previous out in a club, it, there's no way it'd go down at all. You know, it just no. just wasn't relevant at all. So for me to be able to play thirty year old music, you know, at festivals and things like that, and it still go down, uh, you know, is yeah. is is amazing. I mean, I. I I did a back-to-back set last, not the weekend, just gone weekend before, in Ireland with Ewan McVicker, and you know, like he's like the hot thing right now, playing, right. and he plays a lot of like you know '90s kind of stuff. But I, I saw an interview with him, and and he was saying that we did a gig in uh, the Air Pavilion. And his mom was actually pregnant with him, and it's like how to make how to make someone feel really old. But <laughs> but he's he's like so bang into alternate, you know. It's it, yeah. it's mad, you know. And, and he's playing wow. loads and loads of like ninety stuff to you know that wow. he's his fans. So they're getting to know all these like all these old tunes, which is brilliant. Yeah. The one thing I do notice now, though, when I play the old tunes back, they take so long. Well, actually, not me, really your tunes, but a lot of old tracks from way back then, they take a long time before they really get to the climax. Whereas nowadays, it's just a lot more direct, isn't yes, it? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, so, it's straight in because I think the attention span's not not there like it used to be because people have got used to the fact where it's like the build up the massive drop and then you're on to the next one um so so what do you do when you play those old tunes do you just kind of go in i have to mix really quickly you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah and some, sometimes it's like i look at my watch and and i've played about five or six tunes and i've done eight minutes you know and you just yeah. like, wow. <laughs> slow down i'm gonna run out of records here but yeah. <laughs> oh amazing hey and um with alternate were you guys big outside of the uk because I, I wasn't really quite clear on that um 
I mean, it, it got to like 93 and then we started doing like gigs like in Greece. We did a tour of Brazil uh, with Moby. And I mean, like Brazil is somewhere where I, I go to quite often. You know, there's a massive fan base in, in Brazil. Um, you know, you, you play like a, a rave out there and and everyone knows every single word to all your tunes. You know, it's, uh, wow. yeah, so, you know, again, Australia, like America, you know, places like that. So kind of like 93, when we stopped PA in, in the UK, we were doing the rest of the world. Wow, amazing, amazing. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for being on the thank show. You. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. And all your old pranks still make me laugh <laughs> today, so that's fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Cheers. Tell me how the Mark Archer interview went, because he's brilliant. Oh, he is. Fascinating guy. Um, Sum it up, sum it up. The thing that I found really interesting with Mark Archer was, um, in a way, how calculated all the pranks were. And I don't mean that in a horrible way, but, you know, yes, they like to pull pranks anyway, but the, the press department and the record label very soon realized that this was something they could make use of. And so they yeah. did because... Listen, it's marketing. It's clever marketing. Yeah, because they said otherwise there's, oh, the, the press will only talk about you when you have a new, a new record out, but in between there's nothing. And so instead mm. they would pull all these pranks. Um, he wasn't too keen on the one where they ran for office, though, or where Chris ran for office. That wasn't his, his cup of tea, but uh, mm. yeah, he, he liked the other ones. And the thing that I found so interesting was that he never used any ecstasy like he because and normally I wouldn't say oh I'm surprised this person didn't use ecstasy but it it seemed to be such a big part of their act like they were really hinting all well, every record every record every song they had evaporate e this e that it's you know every song had e's every, all over the place brand e's for Christmas there was e everywhere with them there was E everywhere. And so, and they had the vapor up inside the mask, which was for other reasons. It wasn't because they were on E, but people thought they were. And then when they did their first Top of the Pops, they put um, a little Vicks bot like tub on the keyboard. So that was another hint to the, to the ravers. And then, you know, ha having the sample of Top One, Nice One, Get Sorted. I mean, it was just, they were totally playing on it, but they were straight. Mm. So I thought that was yeah. um, that was quite fascinating. And, and was and, he? Uh, would you say yeah. he was? He was like obviously he'd been. If you read his book, the man behind the mask, he he's had some rough rough times. Do you think he's come out stronger? I think so. I was saying to him, I'm really happy that we're doing the podcast now and not ten years ago with all the extra acts that we have on. I think mm. a lot of them have gone through some real hardship and. Everyone seemed to have come out on the other side. And now, of course, there's this whole revival of all these different music styles. And so people are doing great again. So, yeah, our timing was good, James. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful interview. Really good fun. I look forward to hearing it.